It's working. Well, it's kind of a provocative title, isn't it? Chapter 22 in uh, our book is Man as Male and Female. That's somewhat, don't you think that's a provocative title? But it's true. But it's true, <laughs> yes, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Why did God create two sexes? Can men and women be equal in personhood and yet have different roles? And that's the question. So tonight, um, I'd just like to start with um, kind of backing up to chapter 21. I wasn't here last week. I was traveling. But in chapter 21, uh, Grudem talked about the creation of man as uh, one aspect of man's creation in the image of God is his creation as male and female. And could I ask somebody to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27? And then if somebody else could read Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Those are kind of our key verses that we'll work from tonight. If you have it, just go ahead. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay. And he has 5, 1 and 2. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, and he created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Okay. So the creation of man as male and female shows three things. One, it shows um, this harmonious interpersonal relationship between male and female, in this case, Adam and Eve and of course continues today. Secondly, it shows an equality in both personhood and importance. And thirdly, it demonstrates that they have different roles and authority within that relationship. Um, just to kind of put things into context, I, I would like to read, I'm gonna to read to you, and if you wanna turn in your Bibles, to Romans chapter one, and we're gonna read verses 18 through 32. And I think I'll read the first verse of chapter, chapter 1. So starting in verse 18, chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the, of the woman and burned in their desire, their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge, another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So the issues that we see today about human sexuality, we see that in the beginning of really mankind. And um, I think it's, we, we certainly see these kinds of things evident in the world today. We see it all around us, actually. Uh, we see it in our communities. We see it perhaps in some of our families. Uh, we see it in maybe the places where we work. Uh, but we see the depravity of people. And, um, and that depravity stretches back to this whole concept of God creating human beings distinct, male and female, man and woman, both with equal worth before God, equal value before God, but very different uh, physically, very different uh, in some cases emotionally, um, but also uh, with distinct roles within our society, within our culture. And so that's constantly under attack. So we're going to talk about that in the context of what Grudem, uh, Grudem has written here. God uh, made man, and I, when I use that term man, I'm talking about both male and female, to want and need interpersonal relationships. How, how many of you enjoy being around other people? Now, I realize that that some of us are perhaps more <coughs> introverted than others, and some are highly extroverted. And I find myself on the very top corner of introvert edging toward extrovert. My wife will say, I don't understand how you can travel and go out to a restaurant and eat by yourself. And I say to Wanda, I say, well, it's because I enjoy my own company. <laughs> But she would never go out to a restaurant by herself. She wouldn't even go to a fast food restaurant and eat by herself. So, so God has made us to want to have interpersonal relationships with one another. And, of course, he made us so that we would want to have a relationship with him. Uh, and, of course, this comes through 
uh, individual relationships, it comes through the family relationships, the relationships that we enjoy within our neighborhoods and our community, and hopefully the relationships that we enjoy with one another in the body of Christ, not only in our local fellowship, but also when you interact with other believers. It was interesting, today I had a meeting down at Chick-fil-A with the senior vice president of um, legal, and she's the chief general counsel. And I've met her a couple times before, but we sat in a, it was called the sitting room, but it's a glass kind of small conference room, and had lunch together and visited for about an hour. And before we started, I asked her, I said, may I pray for you because she was gonna have her lunch and I was gonna wait and have my lunch afterwards. And so I, I prayed for her. And then at the end of our meeting, I said, do you mind if I pray again for us? And part of my prayer was this, God, thank you that we can enjoy this fellowship together because we're both in Christ. Is, isn't that true? I mean, you may not know someone very well who's a Christian, but you have one great thing, thing in common, and that is that you're both in Christ and the Spirit of God is living and dwelling in you, and so you have this, you have this power of God living in you that allows you to have fellowship with one another and enjoy each other's company. And um, of course, this interpersonal relationship uh, comes to its fullest extent in, in what part of our relationship, ultimately? It's not a hard question. I see two people, people sitting here who've been married a long time. Yeah, it, it, it comes in marriage. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong for someone not to ever marry. In fact, uh, scripture shows that there are some whom God has chosen to be a single, to live a life of singleness, uh, because he has a particular purpose for them in that singleness. So it doesn't devalue singleness, but the ideal would be that people would be in a marriage relationship. And of course, those of us who, who are married uh, or have been married enjoy that kind of relationship one with another. Would somebody read Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 24? Therefore a man shall live, leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay. What happens when two individuals have, have been married, maybe and, and perhaps for a long period of time, and then one of those two individuals, hopefully a believer, passes away and enters into the presence of God in heaven? What happens to that person who's left behind? They, they feel like a part of them is missing, don't they? they? They feel lost because the person that they have spent this enormous amount of time with is no longer there. And it's as if a part of them is, is, is actually missing, which I think this passage to some degree describes. I remember when my, my dad passed away at 62 and my mother was only 57 and she was a school teacher. And you know what she would do after she went to after she taught school, she wouldn't go back home because it was too lonely there. So she would go out and she would shop 
not because she really needed anything, but because it allowed her to be away from the house, and it also allowed her to be in the presence of other people. She wasn't, didn't feel as lonely being in the presence of other people, even though she didn't know most of the people that she came in contact in the stores. The fact that God created two distinct persons as male and female rather than just one man is part of our being in the image of God because it can be seen to reflect to some degree the plurality of persons within the Trinity. I mean, that's, that's not a good analogy, but Jerry taught several weeks ago about the Trinity, and the reality is that God doesn't need anything, does he? Who, who believes that God needs something? Who believes that God needs you or me? He doesn't need anything. In fact, within the Trinity, God is completely satisfied in himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're completely satisfied in themselves, yet God created us in his image because he wanted us to have a relationship with him. He wanted to give us that opportunity to interact and be in fellowship with him. And it was only through the fall that that fellowship was broken. And the second piece of this is equality in personhood and importance. Um, just as the members of the Trinity are equal in their importance and in their full existence as distinct persons, so men and women have been created by God to be equal in their importance and personhood. Have you ever seen an example where one person didn't treat the other person in such a way that they felt that they were equally important to them? I'm sure we've all seen that. In fact, I have to confess, I've treated people that way. And that's a sin, that you would treat someone that way. But in God's view, each of us is equally important. We have the same value to him. Um, men and women are equally important to God and have equal value and worth to him. Therefore, we should exclude all feelings of pride or inferiority and any idea that one sex is better or worse than the other. We should give honor to each other. And that's one of the things that I've, I've noticed. I've worked, I don't work for Chick-fil-A, I work for one of the families that owns Chick-fil-A on the ministry side. And one of the things that I've observed in the 18 months that I've worked there, it, it's just an incredible place to work because people truly, you, you almost think it's something, something's going to happen. It's, it's not going to be this way every day or every week, but I have not seen one instance where I didn't feel like people were treating each other with great value and with great worth worth and so what you see when you walk into a store or a restaurant is actually what you would see if you were inside that that campus uh, down in southwest Atlanta and it's a great reflection on trying to live out how God views us as uh, human beings both male and female uh, would somebody uh, well let's see Scripture elucidates this fact that we should honor one another through several things. One is, you probably read about spiritual gifts, which are distributed to all men and women beginning at Pentecost and continuing throughout the history of the church age. So if somebody would read Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, 
if somebody would read Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and through 8. And then if I could ask one person to read 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. These all deal with spiritual gifts. Acts 2, 17 and 18. Okay. So in the old, uh, before Pentecost, uh, did everyone, ha- did, did, any, did people have the, sp- the Spirit of God dwelling in them prior to Pentecost? They didn't. You had s- situations where the Spirit of God would rest upon someone and God may take the Spirit of, of God, the Holy Spirit, away from that person. So it wasn't until Pentecost that the Spirit of God actually dwelt within those who had been uh, redeemed through the blood of Christ and confessed that. Uh, And then Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Somebody like to read those verses for us? Russ? For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. And if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Thank you. So every believer has at least one spiritual gift, and you may have actually more than one, but one typically is more prominent than the other. Um, And then the last passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Okay. So for the common good, not for us to exalt ourselves because we've received this gift from God. And so spiritual gifts. The second one is prayer. Prayer is given to all believers, and both men and women are equally effectual through intercession. I'm sure you know both men and women who God has given, uh, I don't know, a desire or a passion or the ability to really intercede on behalf of you or others. And so it's not based on male or female, it's based on God giving that person the desire to want to intercede on others' behalf. The third is baptism. Baptism is one of two ordinances commanded by Christ and the apostles for the church. And then the fourth, there's no difference, spiritually speaking, between those baptized in Christ 
Uh, would somebody read Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28? For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so irregardless of what your position in, is in life, if we're in Christ, we're all in Christ together, and we have equal value and importance within the body of Christ. The true dignity of godly manhood and womanhood can be fully realized only in obedience to God's redeeming wisdom as found in Scripture. One of the reasons that I, I read Romans chapter 1 is because I wanted to link it up here at the top, but I also wanted to link it into... Um, this whole misconception about human sexuality. And so if, if you would like to access this yourself, you can go to the website Desiring God. And um, there's an article there written by uh, John Piper dated August the 29th, and its title is Precious Clarity on Human Sexuality, Introducing the Nashville Statement. There you go. I'm going to tell Matt about that. The Nashville Statement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but actually... It was the Southern Baptist uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission who, who compiled a statement on human sexuality because of all the issues that we see around us today. Um, and so I'm just going to read part of this to you. The Nashville Statement is a Christian manifesto concerning issues of human sexuality. It speaks with forthright clarity, biblical conviction, gospel compassion, cultural relevance, and practical helpfulness. There is no effort to equivocate for the sake of wider but muddled acceptance. It is built on the persuasion that the Christian scriptures speak with clarity and authority for the good of humankind. It is permeated by the awareness that we are all sinners in need of divine grace through Jesus Christ. It affirms with joy that no form of sexual sin is beyond forgiveness and healing. It touches the most fundamental and urgent questions of the hour without presuming to be a blueprint for political action. And it will prove to be, I believe, enormously helpful for thousands of pastors and leaders hoping to give wise, biblical, and gracious guidance to their people. So here is the manifesto. The realities of homosexuality and transgenderism dealt with in, in the Nashville Statement were barely on the horizon of the Danvers Statement. Rationale number five of the Danvers Statement flagged the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. And the final affirmation prophetically affirmed, we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasing destructive consequences in our families, our churches, and the culture at large. The Nashville Statement. It begins with Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. The preamble. 
evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. As Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. It is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that, sooner or later, ruin human life and dishonor God. This spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church. Will the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lose her biblical conviction, clarity, and courage and blend into the spirit of the age? Or will she hold fast to the word of life, draw courage from Jesus, and unashamedly proclaim his way as the way of life? Will she maintain her clear countercultural witness to a world that seems bent on ruin? We are persuaded that faithfulness in our generation means declaring once again the true story of the world and our place in it, particularly as male and female. Christian scripture teaches that there is but one God who alone is creator and Lord of all. To him alone, every person owes glad-hearted thanksgiving, heartfelt praise, and total allegiance. This is the path not only of glorifying God, but of knowing ourselves. To forget our creator is to forget who we are, for he made us for himself. And we cannot know ourselves truly without truly knowing him who made us. We did not make ourselves. We are not our own. Our true identity as male and female persons is given by God. It is not only foolish, but hopeless to try to make ourselves what God did not create us to be. We believe that God's design for his creation and his way of salvation served to bring him the greatest glory and bring us the greatest good. God's good plan provides us with the greatest freedom. Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it in overflowing measure. He is for us and not against us. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purposes of God for human sexuality revealed in Christian scripture, we offer the following affirmations and denials. Now, I'm not going to read the denials. I'm just going to read the affirmations. Article 1, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. Article 2, we affirm that God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Article 3, we affirm that God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings, in his own image, equal before God as persons and distinct as male and female. Article 4, we affirm that divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original creation design and are meant for human good and human <clears throat> flourishing. Article 5, we affirm that the differences between male and female reproductive structures are integral to God's design for self-conception as male or female. 
Now it's going to get interesting here. Article 6. We affirm that those born with a physical disorder of sex development are created in the image of God and have dignity and worth equal to all other image bearers. They are acknowledged by our, by our Lord Jesus in his words about eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. With all others, they are welcome as faithful followers of Jesus Christ and should embrace their biological sex insofar as it may be known. Article 7. We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. Article 8. We affirm that people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ as they, like all Christians, walk in purity of life. Article 9, we affirm that sin distorts sexual desires by directing them away from the marriage covenant and towards sexual immorality, a distortion that includes both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. Article 10, we affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. So on the one hand, we recognize that that's sin. On the other hand, we extend grace to people and we extend the gospel to people both in word and in deed in our lives. Article 11, we affirm our duty to speak the truth in love at all times, including when we speak to or about one another as male or female. Article 12, we affirm that the grace of God in Christ give, gives both merciful pardon and transforming power and that this pardon and power enable a follower of Jesus to put to death sinful desires and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Article 13, we affirm that the grace of God in Christ enables sinners to forsake transgender self-conceptions and by divine forbearance to accept the God-ordained link between one's biological sex and one's self-conception as male or female. And the last one, Article 14, we affirm that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners and that through Christ's death and resurrection, forgiveness of sins and eternal life are available to every person who repents of sin and trusts in Christ alone as Savior, Lord, and supreme treasure. I want to give you two personal examples. Years ago, um, I was invited to go down to the Gay Pride Parade and uh, to go as an evangelist, and I agreed to do that. Having never done this before, uh, I did a lot of praying, and my job on the streets of downtown Atlanta on Peachtree Street was to constantly go up to people that were in the crowd and introduce myself and offer them a gospel tract that had a humorous uh, front page on I mean, uh, the, the, it was humorous on the front or something that would attract the person to at least not reject it. And so I began my work. I left the church here. I took Marta down to Atlanta. I went down to Peachtree Street. I was with other people. And I began handing out tracts and introducing myself to people. It was so interesting because what I found was that if you would go up to someone in a crowd and you would introduce yourself and you would offer them a tract, they were usually hesitant to take the tract from you. 
but God began to show me something that I could do. I would try to pick out something about them that I could compliment them on, whether it was a piece of clothing or a hat or maybe just their appearance, and it would break the barrier down, and then they usually would accept the track. What I also found was that oftentimes the one who would accept their partner would attempt not to let that happen. They would try to protect them from this evil person who was, who was talking with them. And I actually had a couple of young men ask if they could speak to me. And so we, we just moved away from the crowd on the street and found a little place that was somewhat quiet beside a building and we would have a conversation. This young man told me, he was in his 20s, he said, I used to go to a Southern Baptist church. He didn't know I was in a Southern Baptist church. I used to go to a Southern Baptist church. And what he was really telling me was that he had a, he had a biblical basis for understanding that the lifestyle that he was in was not right, but he didn't know how to escape the lifestyle. It's very interesting when you approach people in love and you don't judge them based upon what their situation is and the Spirit of God is working in that situation how they might respond in a positive way to something that you think is going to be a very negative uh, encounter. Secondly, uh, my family and I moved to Southern California in 1993 and I had about uh, 60 employees in three states and actually four states and a couple of U.S. protectorates out in the South Pacific. And in the industry that I was in, a service industry, there were quite a few um, uh, gay employees. It just it was part of the industry that I was in and certainly the location that I was working in. And what I did is I just simply treated every person that I came in contact with with respect and tried to engage them in a personal conversation to show interest in them individually. And even though they knew that I was a Christian, and even though I had gotten pressure from our corporate office in San Francisco about who I was and how I behaved at work, the people that actually worked around me enjoyed the relationship that we had. And my whole point is, it, it's, it taught me to be very careful about prejudging people. And this is really what this chapter is about, is that God's perfect design was that he made us in his image, and he made us distinctly male and female. That is the ideal. But when the fall occurred, of course, everything went into chaos, didn't it? We're living in chaos today, not just in this area, but in every area of life. And our responsibility as God's people is to be those people who can encounter others who are having a difficult time in life and somehow have them see Christ in us so that they can begin to, to recognize that God truly loves them. Here's another question that I like to ask do you ever encounter people that have a low self-image? Do you ever encounter people that, that um, even verbalize their low self-image? Here's something that I say to people when I experience that. I say, 
did you know that God created you in his image? Now, they may or may not be a Christian or even a God-fearer, but I'll say, did you know that God created you in his image? And they kind of look at me. And I said, did you know that God has never created anyone like you in the past, nor will he ever create anyone like you in the future? You are uniquely made by God. And the idea is, is to help them begin to understand that there is a God who created them, created them uniquely, and there is a God who loves them and loves them deeply. And this low self-image that they have or this issue that they have, hopefully they begin to see some light breaking through that indicates that they're not really who they think they are. They're much more valuable than they think they are, whether they're male or female because they have great worth to God and they have great value to God and they have equal value. So let's talk about uh, differences in roles. So the relationship between the Trinity and male headship in marriage. Between the members of the Trinity there has been equality in importance, personhood, and deity throughout all eternity but there have also been differences in roles between members of the Trinity. Uh, Grudem wrote about the role of leadership within the Trinity. Who, who holds the leadership position within the Trinity? Even though they're, they're all equal, the Father does. God the Father has greater authority. He has a leadership role among all members of the Trinity that the Son and Holy Spirit do not have. When Jesus was making his way to Calvary, to Golgotha, which was his ultimate mission, he, all, he continued to say uh, that he was constantly doing God's will, the Father's will. He was constantly talking to the Father and affirming that he was doing the Father's will. The Son and the Spirit do not have that same level of authority within the Godhead. In creation, the Father speaks and initiates, but the work of creation is carried out through the Son and sustained by the continuous presence of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, John 1, 1 and 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Hebrews 1 and 2. In redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world. And the Son comes and is obedient to the Father and dies to pay for our sins. After the Son has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. Different roles, different functions, equal within the Godhead of the same essence, but carrying out different roles and responsibilities within the Godhead. The Father did not come to die for our sins, nor did the Spirit. The Father was not poured out on the church at Pentecost in New Covenant power, nor was the Son. Each member of the Trinity has distinct roles or functions. Differences in roles and authority between members of the Trinity are thus completely consistent with equal importance, personhood, and deity. Now, Paul makes that parallel with human beings, with us, with man and woman. Paul makes this parallel and he says in 1 Corinthians 11:3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband. And the head of Christ 
is God, of course, the Father. Just as God the Father has authority over the Son, though the two are equal in deity, so in marriage the husband has authority over the wife, though they are equal in personhood. In this case, the man's role is like that of God the Father. Now, this is an analogy. It's not perfect. But the analogy that he uses here is that the man's role is like that of God the Father, and the woman's role is parallel to that of God the Son. They were equal in importance, but they have different roles. So I, I quickly learned in, in my marriage through trial and error that, um, that Wanda, being a former banker, and one who was brought up uh, and trained to live on a budget was much better equipped than I was at, at managing our financial budget. And even though I resisted it for a while because of pride, I finally relinquished when I realized she was much better than that than I was. And so I submitted to her in the area of budgeting uh, and paying the bills because she was much better at it than I was. And thank God she trained our son and our daughter so that they could get out into the world and hopefully manage their finances uh, properly too. She also discovered that, uh, that I had certain um, capabilities that perhaps she, didn't, she wasn't as strong in, and so she submitted to me in those areas, and I tried to carry out that responsibility uh, in our marriage. And she pressed back on me on some of those things. And I, I'm guessing it was pride. I never asked her that question, but I'm guessing it was pride because that's usually what happens to all of us. Just as God the Father has authority over the Son, though the two are equal in deity, so in marriage the husband has authority over the wife, though they are equal in personhood. I already read that. Okay. What about indications of distinct roles before the fall? Here's a question. Were there distinction distinctions between male and female roles as part of God's original creation or were they introduced as part of the punishment of the fall? Did they have distinct roles? Did Adam and Eve have distinct roles before the fall occurred? Or did they have, did these roles come into play after the fall? Just think about it biblically. What did God instruct Adam to do with the animals? He told him to name every animal. He gave him that responsibility to name each of the animals that God had created. He didn't give, of course, Eve wasn't, as far as we know, Eve wasn't present at that time, so she wasn't given that responsibility. So Adam was created first, and then Eve. We all know that. The fact that God created Adam then, after a period of time, Eve suggests that God saw Adam as having leadership role in his family. This was not true with the animal kingdom. The creation of Adam first is consistent with the Old Testament pattern of primogeniture. The idea that the firstborn in any generation in a human family has leadership in the family for that generation unless special circumstances intervene to change that fact. Can you think of some examples in the Old Testament where the firstborn was not given the leadership role within the patriarchal family? Jacob and Esau, even though they were twins. Esau was born first, and then Jacob. Uh, what, what is another example? Anybody ever listen to Alistair Begg? 
Anybody ever heard of Alistair Begg? I would encourage you to listen to Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish pastor in a Baptist church up in Cleveland, Ohio. He's been teaching this week on, um, I guess he started last week, on the story of, um, oh my gosh, he's got my character now. The colored robe. I'm having a senior Joseph. moment. The colored robe. Joseph, Joseph thank you. <laughs> I knew it was starting with a J. I just couldn't think of his name. So he was one of what, 12 sons? He was the, the youngest of 12 sons. And who should have had the leadership role within that family after um, Jacob? It was Reuben, yes. But uh, who was given that leadership role? And he did it for his ultimate purpose, which was what? To save the nation from the famine. And uh, so there's another example. He was created as a helper for Adam. Now, that word is not a, a derogatory word. I mean, I consider myself a helper to Wanda. Hillary, do you consider yourself a helper to Pam? She does more than I do. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And Pam to, to help. So scripture specifies that God made Eve for Adam, not Adam for Eve. Genesis 2.18. Paul writes, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You know, that's going to go over really good in our culture, isn't it? That's going to go really far in our culture. As a significant reason to establish different roles in... Um, I think this is right. In worship, this does not mean lesser importance, but different functions and roles within the church. Paul was, was talking about the church, and he was talking about different roles within the church in this particular example, although that didn't seem very clear. And then uh, who was given responsibility to give uh, Eve her name? Adam. God instructed Adam to give her a name, and he gave... Eve the name. The fact that Adam gave names to the animals indicated that Adam's authority over the animal kingdom because the Old Testament through the right to name someone implied authority over that person. Therefore, when Adam named Eve in Genesis 2.23, it indicated a leadership role on his part as well. This is true before the fall and after the fall when Adam names his wife woman. Eve means woman. And it is true after the fall when the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living, Genesis 3.20. Now, this is where the, the title gets provocative, man is male and female. Because if you turn in um, Genesis 5.2, somebody might read uh, Genesis 5.2, just read that one verse for us. He created them male and female and blessed them, and when they were created, he called them. Now, people would argue that because it was a patriarchal period and because Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Pentateuch, of the Bible, that uh, that's why that term, that, that masculine term was used, but that's not the case. Uh, God used that term purposely to describe the human race. 
and then within the human race you had two distinct uh, uh, beings, you had male and female. So God did not use a feminine or neutral gender term. Genesis 5-2 specifies that the name that God gave them in creation was man. Who did the serpent come to first? Eve. Came to Eve. Why do you think the serpent came to Eve? Maybe she was more persuaded. influenced or persuaded yes. by the deception. <laughs> yeah. Now, many Bible scholars believe that Adam was either right by her side or close by. So, but who was given ultimate responsibility for the fall? Yeah, was it given to Eve? Mm -hmm. No. I think it was because God had spoken directly to Adam. Adam got the instruction from God, so it would have been theoretically more difficult for Satan to, to twist the words that God had told him. So, um, so God gives the responsibility for the fall to Adam, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. So even though God came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, I mean, God knew where they were. <laughs> he wasn't confused. He spoke to Adam. He said, where are you? And it was Adam who spoke to God. It wasn't Eve. The serpent deceived Eve, and then he deceived Adam. He approached the weaker vessel first, although God assigned responsibility for the fall to Adam as the leader of the family. Adam, not Eve, represented the human race. We just talked about that. We are counted sinful because of Adam's sin, not because of Eve's sin. The New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and 49, and Adam all die, and many died through one man's trespasses. Romans 5.15 and 12.21. This indicates that God has given Adam headship or leadership with respect to the human race, a role that was not given to Eve. I saw a clear picture of this some years ago when I was in Israel. And we were in a, the old city of Acre, or Akko. And in this um, crusader castle that still stands, stands there, we had a viewing of the, the film uh, um, Adam and Eve, now called The Sin. It's been renamed The Sin. And the people that were invited to this theater were Muslims. And we had one Muslim imam who traveled from a distance to come to the, to the film, and I was sitting just a few rows from him, and the film ended. And you know what his greatest objection to the film was? was about the sin, right? The fall. He said, that woman, that woman, she is responsible, not the man. Which goes right back to Islamic theology in the Quran. And so it was very interesting to see this Muslim imam make this statement in front of those that were there, because that's the one thing that caught his attention, the one thing that drew his, his ire, is that in the film, God uh, gives that responsibility to Adam, 
but in his mind, it was all about the woman. She was culpable, the man was not. Well, like Paul said, God told Adam, he didn't tell Eve, but yet Adam didn't stop Eve, and he could have stopped Eve. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the relationship between male and female, a lot of times, women can get their way with men fairly easy, and I think Satan saw that, that, you know, Adam would not stand up to Eve because evidently he didn't. And then, so he should be blamed. We're about out of time. I think I'll conclude with, with two things. Um, one is, um, and we won't read this, but Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. We all know what that passage about. It's about mutual submission in the relationship, uh, the, the marriage relationship, but it's also about the relationship within the church submission within the church. How many of you have seen situations where people in the church were not willing to submit to the leadership that God had brought to the church? I mean, I, we've all seen it, haven't we? And it all gets back to pride and sin is what it comes down to. <coughs> Unless, of course, there's something inappropriate happening or a overuse, perhaps, of authority in that position. Um, but I would like to just conclude by reading the last piece from uh, Gruden, because I think it summarizes things well. It's, if you have your books, it's on page 467. The very last paragraph, it says, Husbands, therefore, should aim for loving, considerate, thoughtful leadership in their families. Wives should aim for active, intelligent, joyful submission to their husband's authority. In avoiding both kinds of mistakes and following a biblical pattern, Husbands and wives will discover true biblical manhood and womanhood in all of their noble dignity and joyful complementarity as God created them to be and will thus reflect more fully the image of God in their lives. So I think we've learned by experience, particularly those who've been married a long time, that the more that we practice that, the more joy we have in our our marriages and also in our families and our relationships let me finish with a prayer father we thank you that um, you are so wise and so loving and so perfect help us to embrace the things that you're teaching us help us first of all to submit to the authority that you have over our lives and then help us to submit to one another as your children uh, help us to submit to the leadership that you place over us both in the church and at work and in the government and father help us to represent you in such a way that you are glorified in our lives and that we experience good as a result of that for it's in jesus name we pray amen thank y'all